Good evening, Agent Starling. Good of you to come. Identification, please. So um, today we're going to... Uh, every time I say this is going to be a brief video, it goes on for ages, so I won't say that. I'll avoid the curse. Humans are attachment machines. We're attachment-making machines. We attach to everything. And if you think about the way in which we form meaning in the world, it's through neural pathways, neural networks, neurons that fire together, wire together, they say. That's an attachment between one thing and another thing. Our sense of something being significant or not significant is actually derived from a contrast to other things like it. What? What did, what did you say there, lad? We're just using all them mad long words again. Oh no, I'm not watching that. We attach, we create attachments. That's how we form meaning in the world. If you have a sense of, let's say many people follow me because they're really struggling to overcome a narcissistic abusive relationship. They're still fixated on the person, even though they know the person is awful. Or you can't give up something or you can't motivate yourself to do something. It's all attachment. It's all attachment, really. On another video, I said you have your attachment trauma. Um, and then later in life, you have individuation trauma. And I said, and then somebody in the comments said, talk more about individuation trauma. And I was like, oh, no, it was a joke. It was a throwaway comment. And apparently it's not a joke. Apparently there is individuation trauma as well as, as, well as attachment trauma. Um, so we build attachments to things. And it starts when we're very, very young. This is how we, this is what we're doing when we build our map of reality and our maps of what things mean in the world, what has value in the world. We're doing it through attachment, through an attaching style. I mean, you could even say it's almost like literal. It's like you take this thing and this thing and the brain goes, click, those two things belong together. These two things are related. Put a neural pathway down between that and that. The more it fires, as with a muscle, over time, the stronger it gets. The pathway that is uh, well-trodden, frequently trodden, gets deeper and deeper and deeper and more and more entrenched. How does this pertain to addiction, codependency, and ideological infection? The codependent... Well, first of all, this is, this is subclinical as a definition. And I'm being possibly a little naughty in that I'm using the term with a wink and a nudge, hoping that everybody's kept up with me up until now, which is very narcissistic of me. Like if you haven't studied every single one of my videos chronologically, I want a bloody good reason why. And you write it down in the comments now. And so I'm narcissistically or probably more kindly more fairly said, solipsistically, from my single point of view, I'm like, well, I've covered this. I've already explained why. Because I sit alone in a room with a camera, or in this today, it's a phone, and talk as though I'm talking to one person. I don't speak to groups. It's part of the way I was trained. It was like, you'll be more um, personable if you imagine you're just talking to one person rather than if you're talking to a group, because you are actually always talking to one person. You're never really talking to a group, right? Makes sense. It's a good piece of advice if you want to do uh, YouTube videos. 
And so in my subjective solipsistic experience, I've already covered this. And then when people say, well, I don't under, I'm like, well, why, how could you possibly not? Why have you not studied every single one of my videos? When I'm talking about codependence, I'm taking the, as far as I know, also subclinical term that's bandied around the narcissosphere, narcissosphere, not, not narcissosphere, narcissosphere, narcissosphere um, and uh, which would be Echo or Pete Walker, uh, Judith Herman, uh, CPTSD language and call it um, a, a, fawn a fawn responder or use like trait theory and talk more in like Jordan Peters Peters Peterson terms of being hyper agreeable. Those people are agreeable. They're high in trait agreeableness, height in trait disagreeableness, or being being open to conflict. And the codependent is hyper agreeable. There's an openness here, an openness to attachment, an openness to um, a boundarylessness, a walllessness to codependency in the way that I'm talking about it. And I'm not claiming exclusivity. Many people talk about codependency this way. Just because it's subclinical doesn't mean it's not, it's not known to be this thing. I, I do have a fair number of like counselors, psychotherapists and psychiatrists who follow me and, and you know, I'm usually contacted by them, not exaggerate, like three or four times a week. And nobody's saying to me the way you're using the term codependency is completely wrong and totally like confusing. It's understood. And it's, it's, it's not unacademic the way I'm using it is what I'm saying. It's not, I'm not just pulling it out of my ass. Uh, there are people who pretend that codependency is the opposite end of a, of a spectrum uh, the symmetrical spectrum with narcissism on the other end. And if you're codependent, you're an innocent victim. And if you're a narcissist, you're a predator. So you want to be in the codependent spot so that you can show up for your slice of victimhood pie and everybody's going to pat you on the bottom and say, poor you. Well, I think that's, that's counterfactual, um, childish, infantilizing, and really, really, really damaging. Really damaging, which is, bear that in mind, because we're going to come to ideological infection presently um so though it's not a clinical diagnosis i am using it in the way that it is used it is used by clinicians it would be understood i could start a conversation with any counselor anywhere in the world and as long as they spoke english i could say this client appears to be codependent and they would have they would their idea of what that meant would match mine to like an 80 to 90 percent accuracy which means it's a useful model where does drugs come into this? Codependency means we're very, very open to attachment. Human beings are attachment-making machines, but people with good enough parents are raised in an environment that allows them to have boundaries and judgment about who and what to attach to, who and what to let in. You heard uh, there's that film that was remade, it wasn't a very good remake, called Let the Right One In, ironically enough, about vampires, um, narcissism, vampirism the mythological law has interesting comparisons in many uh, vampiric traditions um, a vampire couldn't just pull you out from the street they had to coerce you and trick you into inviting you across the threshold because people were living in a time where they would have crosses over the house over the door of the house and in the house to protect them from evil spirits and if you imagine these are like spiritual laser 
security systems, me as an evil entity, a demonic spirit, I can't pass the threshold. We would want to keep that narrative alive, right? If we're building a, a, a mythology, you'd be like, oh, but if you have your cross and you say your prayers, the house is glowing with, spiritual, with a spiritual shield and all will be well. So how do I switch it off? I have to say to you from beyond the gates, could you turn off the security system so I may enter? And then you have to let the right one in. Let the right one in. Because if you let the wrong one in, you just let a vampire into your house who will either suck you dry and kill you outright or turn you into one of them. Again, uh, interesting how these vampiric law, the vampiric law from across the globe, it's a, uh, there's many cultures who have different variations of, of vampires. Um, it matches the what we know to be the process of the of development of a narcissistically abusive relationship. Uh, sometimes you you would just be drunk dry, probably because you're a low source of supply, uh, a low quality source of supply. You would be used and then abandoned, which actually sounds worse, but is infinitely better than option two, which is where the vampire makes you, depending on the law. Um, you know, whether you're reading Anne Rice or the lore of like the Blade comics or, or whatever, they can turn you into a familiar, like a witch's familiar or a pet. They give you some of their blood and then you will either become a full-fledged vampire or in different worlds, you'd become like a half a vampire. But basically you're a junkie now. They drink from you 80% and they give back to you 20% so you'll never die. But you fear sunlight. You'll never die, you'll have the thirst, you will also need to kill, but you will fear sunlight, and now you can be killed by, uh, you can be hurt by garlic and crosses. You'll be hurt by what hurts them, and you'll avoid what they avoid. So you're now infected. It's an infection. And in some law, in some uh, imaginary worlds, it is portrayed as a blood-borne disease. Vampirism is a, a blood-borne uh, virus. Um, Blade, the, the Blade comics. And uh, it was covered pretty, pretty faithfully in the, in the first movie. Um, it, was, it was something that you could deal with medically, which is why Blade could, was called uh, the Daywalker, because they could give him a serum for his, that would fight the effect in his blood that allowed him to tolerate uh, sunlight being on his skin, um, which is an interest, another interesting idea. Uh, those who fight demons may be half demonic themselves or raised by the evil entity or has some insider insight, some insider rapport, insider empathy. You know, they can kill vampires because they're part vampire themselves. They can, they know what, what, what werewolves do because, you know, they were raised by werewolves or they've got like werewolf DNA in their right eyeball or something. Um, and so you can see how that, that crosses over. The codependent doesn't know who to let in and who not to let in. No, wait, it's worse than that. The codependent, fawn responder, hyper agreeable, echo type, simply lets everyone in. There is nothing, <clears throat> there is nothing to not let in because there are no walls. If a codependent is a true codependent, what I consider to be a true codependent, raised in a brutally uh, barbaric, psychologically barbaric childhood environment where all boundaries in the eyes of the narcissistic psychopathic parents were seen as a source of narcissistic injury. They're raised with no boundaries because if I, as a tiny child, inflict narcissistic injury on a raging monster, it would mean 
you know, torture, abandonment, possibly death. So better not do that. So you would have no boundaries. You become boundary averse or, or boundary phobic, if you like. So there's no high wall on that castle. A castle with no wall isn't really a castle. It's just, it's just, I don't know, a room <laughs> with precious stuff inside of it. It's not, it's not a fort. It doesn't offer any protection. If there's no walls, you still can have a king and a queen and you can still have all your servants and everything. But if everything can get in and everything can get out and there's no boundaries, it's really not a castle and you can't build a kingdom like that. If a country has no boundaries, it's not a country anymore. If anything can get in and anything can get out with no question and it's completely boundaryless, it really ceases to be a country. The, the idea of it as a country is, is being rendered meaningless. If a human has no boundaries, no skin, the skin is wall. The skin is intelligent. It intelligently uh, chooses what to let in and what to let out. Um, that's your boundary. If you have no skin for some reason, well, what happens to a person who's, say, for some horrendous accident, has 80 to 90% skin damage? Well, if you don't give them an artificial skin right soon, um, in, a, in a very sterile environment, they will die. Of what? Poisoning, viruses. And actually, I think, I'm not a doctor, so this is, allow me to bluff for a second here on what I heard in a film once <laughs> or read in a book somewhere. I'm pretty sure it's blood poisoning. And I'm pretty sure, I'm also pretty sure if you get blood poisoning, is that septicemia? Uh, it's really bad. Like, you, it's, it's pretty critical. You're, you're going into a critical condition. Because what does blood do? Well, it moves around the body because the heart makes it do that. Because if it's not, you're dead. If it's not transporting oxygen around the body, you're dead. So no boundary, no protection, virus get in, virus kill very, very quickly. Codependents have no walls. We're wall phobic. Codependents have no boundaries. We're boundary phobic. Codependents don't know how to say no. Saying no can lead them into an emotional flashback. And yet we need these things. Literally need, not want. It's not like, here's the Anthony Robbins, your life is going to be amazing. Your yacht is going to be fucking huge, bro. No, no, no. You will suffer and die without these walls. You will suffer and then die. Oh, it might be a slow death. It might take you decades. But you'll never really, you'll never know life. You'll never be alive because... If you're walking around skinless, you're constantly dodging and you're twitchy because you don't want people to emotionally touch you because you have no walls. It's bloody dangerous to be emotionally touched. So you're right to be, to be anxious about it and touchy and uh, reactive and hypervigilant and emotionally labile and emotionally dysregulated and counterdependent in the face of love and terrified in the face of affection and bewildered by people who are regulated and, and loving, of course because you don't have boundaries and you need to get some. You really do. It's not optional. It's not an optional add-on. It's not an optional extra. It's not like having a big yacht. It's a case of do or die, really. Where do drugs play into this? The codependent doesn't have internal or external boundaries. So external boundaries, if we continue the fortress or the castle metaphor, 
would be the wall that keeps invaders out. It allows my archers, who are who are going to do the medical thing, my lymphocytes, to uh, fight from a good position, a nice high position, any invaders that come along. The internal boundaries separate the kitchen from the bedroom, the bedroom from the great hall, the great hall from the armory room, and the armory room from the slaves' quarters. I'm oh, sorry, servants' quarters. They're not slaves in my kingdom, of course. <laughs> what do you think I am? Some sort of a monster? Well, no internal boundaries means everybody's going to be bloody confused because everybody's everywhere all the time. And what does it mean to say I'm sat in the armory when the armory is the living room? What does it mean to say I'm in my bedroom now? Don't look at me. I'm naked. Don't look at me. I'm trying to have sex with the queen. There's no, there's no fucking walls, mate. We can't help it. <laughs> We're over here in the servants' quarters, which is just a bit of shin-high string on the floor with no bloody walls. So everything is everything. External entities can come in and out at will. Servants can walk off. Everybody steals your armor, your precious things, your, your robes, your crown. Everybody's doing whatever they want to anybody else because there's no status and no boundaries between anything. That's not a castle. That's just a little messy encampment, really, isn't it? There's no walls. How do you think that works for a human being? Anybody and anything can get in and out. So you would probably be letting good things out. Like if you think about a cell and the cell wall, it's supposed to keep good stuff in and excrete waste out. Any invaders that come or nasties that come, it's supposed to stop them. Well, anything can get in. All of your good stuff flows out. I don't know, good stuff. Money, time, resources, love, attention. <laughs> wasted, gone. Poisonous, evil, vampiric, <clears throat> parasitic people of evil of a people of evil intent towards you and your enterprise as a as a nation, as a human, as a project. Because you are these things. You might be like, I don't like this kind of language. Well, suck it up, buttercup, because this is how it works. This is how it works. You might want to fantasize that you can sit in your underpants on the side of a mountain and say om and have no ego boundaries. And you have no external ego boundaries and you've transcended the material world and you have no need of internal boundaries because you're egoless. Great, great, get off the fucking internet. Get off the internet. Give up your house, give up all your worldly goods. Lose all your opinions. Stop speaking. Take a vow of silence. It's very common. Very common across the globe. People who are really doing it and not posturing, they lose the, uh, they lose the need to speak. They lose the need to engage in the world. We, we think of these things as being a vow of silence. I don't think these things... Well, I think they're a vow of silence for young new monks and nuns new to the discipline. For the ones who are old in the game, they just stop talking. Because what's to be said? If your life is one of pure meditation, pure present moment prayer, there's very little to be done and there's almost nothing to be said. So stop posturing because I'm not that. I'm damn sure not that. I have an ego. I have desires. I have wants. I have opinions. And you're damn sure not that. So let go of the fantasy because it's poisonous. You're clinging. You're, again, it's an attachment. It's an attachment to uh, an idea that you find comforting. 
It's what Louis C.K. called the believies. I have all these believies and I live by none of them. These things keep us infantile. They keep us immature. They stop us from growing. They stop us from facing up to the burden of responsibility we have to bear as human beings. There's no way out. There's no way out. You may as well accept it. I, I see people every day doing fucking acrobatics, torturing themselves, putting themselves in contortions intellectually, emotionally, and in terms of their practical daily lives because they fear lifting that little stone from there to there. I'm like, just do the thing you have to do. What you're doing is not easier. That's not, that's not easier. It's like, uh, I can't remember who said it. I think it was an Eastern philosopher. It was repeated by the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Uh, oh God, oh, it's gone. It's gone. Somebody will say in the comments, um, you know, and if you're an elephant, be an elephant. If you're a giraffe, be a giraffe. There's nothing more absurd or painful to watch than a giraffe trying to be an elephant. Imagine you're this long necked thing and you're trying to pretend that your neck is a trunk and the elephant's walking around with its trunk up all day going, this is my neck. This is my mouth and face. And everybody's going, you look ridiculous. Blatantly isn't true. And you're miserable doing that. So stop it. Be the thing that you are. Drop it. Drop the act. Drop the act. Drop it all. Let it go. I'm not saying be egoless. Have no ego boundaries. I'm saying, no, maybe you'll choose that one day. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe I would wager nobody watching this video really will or really has the capacity for it. It's a very rare thing, very rare thing indeed. But say you are gonna do that and that is your ambition. I wanna live free from ego boundaries. I wanna drop all my internal ego boundaries, my external. Okay, cool, you wanna go the underpants on the side of the mountain in the Himalayas. The people who are telling me this are on social media like four or five hours a day and then consume four or five hours of TV. And they're saying, no, I, I, I want to attain to enlightenment. Uh, I... Okay. Sounds good. Sounds really awesome. <laughs> What's your next trick going to be? So we have to develop these internal ego boundaries. When we don't have internal ego boundaries and we don't have external ego boundaries, we lose the ability to say no. And then we have no impulse control. And then every single impulse that arises in this boundaryless internal space, this shitty broken down castle that maybe has one wall over there that you built when you were four behind the parents or teachers backs. And maybe it has like a little stand over there and you're going, look at my domain, my castle. And everybody's going, mm, yes, this is, this is wonderful. So you then lose the ability when any impulse arises to say no. There's no internal boundaries to stop it. Are drugs all about impulse control? No, but you're codependently attaching to an external object to alter your emotional state. It's an attachment. What did the Buddha say about dukkha, which is suffering, the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism? All life is suffering or dissatisfaction, as it might be translated. And where does dissatisfaction, suffering, dukkha come from? Attachment. It's all attachment. This is what Buddha said. He said it's all attachment. 
And it's right, like life is attachment. Life is dissatisfaction, life is attachment. We're attached to things, we're going to be attached to things, that's, that's the way it goes. The codependent is a word we could use for our, I use it for myself, I use it for the people I'm regularly talking to. We don't function without, typically people who are here, if, you're co if you identify as codependent because you feel like you need to, all your relationships uh, end up playing out in a strange way because either you get with somebody who's abusive or you get with somebody who's not abusive and you get with them in a weird way. You don't know how to do attachment in a way that's boundaried and healthy. Or you try and get with somebody who's going to attach with you in a weird way and they don't know how to do attachment that's boundaried and healthy. The similar outcomes for everything I just described is the same outcome ultimately every time. No attachment. Lots of heartbreak, lots of dissatisfaction, lots of dukkha, lots of suffering. And this is all coming from a very simple thing, which is a lack of boundaries. It's a lack of, it's a lack of internal, intricate, nuanced, carefully created boundaries and external, intricate, nuanced, intelligent boundaries that keep the good stuff in and the bad stuff out. And that if it lets somebody in, it only lets the right one in which means good judgment, which means critical thought, which means at times the capacity to condemn and say, you don't belong in here, son. You don't belong in here, ma'am. This is not for you. It's time for you to move along. That also is having boundaries. So we overattach in a boundaryless way with people that we shouldn't be attached to, with people who are completely unqualified for safe attachment. And in the same way we do that with food and with drugs, and all of these things provide the same function. And this is where we can see the nastier side, the not so innocent lamb side of codependency. We recruit people the way, in a way not dissimilar to narcissists to perform a function. Because I can't control my emotional lability, because I can't control my emotional dysregulation, I bring people in to feel feelings for me or to help me with my feelings. That's what you do with drugs. Drugs are only about feelings. Drugs are only about state management. They're never about anything else. You feel miserable and you want to not feel the way you feel because you have no boundaries and because you have no impulse control. The easiest thing to do is reach for a line of coke, reach for a drink, reach for a pill, reach for something that changes your physiological state and hope that your emotion marches lockstep behind that altered physiological state. That's codependency. Food. I think that codependents very typically have a poor relationship with food for reasons we can get into in a separate video. But it's fundamentally the same principle is that I'm trying to find something external that helps me to cope with my uncomfortable feelings and my difficult, my non-functional state management. I, I don't know how to manage my own state. I don't know how to process my own emotions. I have zero emotional literacy in fact, I'm terrified of my feelings. Okay, well, that's fine. It's not your fault, but you should do something about that. You can do something about that, and you really should. It's nobody else's responsibility but yours. Your feelings are your feelings. They're nobody else's. They're happening inside of your body. It's your body, it's your brain, it's your spine, it's your breath, it's your life, it's your time. They are them. You are you. You can come together for a time. <laughs> come together, Freudian. 
you can enjoy each other's company, you can hang out, you can have some experiences together, but you'll never merge. You'll never merge, you'll never fuse. They'll never solve you. They'll never solve you. They'll never resolve you. In fact, if anything, these kinds of non-functioning, codependent, really emotionally and perceptually and cognitively distorted relationships can only really, in the end, lead to dissolution, not resolution. So give them up. Give it up. It's not worked for you so far. It's not going to work for you. If it was going to work, it would have done by now. And I don't care if you're 25 or 65 watching this video. Same rules apply. It's never worked for you, has it? I'm, I can speak like this to codependents because they know what I'm saying straight away. No, non-codependents would be like, huh? What is this? What is this weird, <laughs> this weird doctrine? It's like when you say to people, nobody's coming to save you. Codependents are like, ah, oh, that's good. Other people are like, I don't know why you just said that to me. It's meaningless. <laughs> if you know, you know. If it hits you in that way, it's because that's relevant to your experience. Okay. Kept it to just under half an hour. Not bad. Not bad. Happy with that. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your time and your attention. If you want to know more about um, overcoming the tendency towards codependency, I have a new course out on it that's called Summoning the Self. And uh, that's available now. I highly recommend it. It is advisable that you've already done some emotional literacy and some emotional flashback work first, however, before you jump on that. So thank you very much. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Cheers.